Well, thank you uh, so much, Pastor Rob. It's been really fun to be with you guys. I, we've only been here like 48 hours, and I feel like we've been here forever. And um, I think I'm going to retire here. I think if um, there's, only, there's just one thing lacking. I, I actually could become a, a, a Packers fan. I mean, I really could. Um, but one thing, we need to import some mountains here. You know, because Washington State has the mountains, but uh, you guys have a lot going for you. Today, we, we enjoyed uh, going up to uh, Rib Mountain, I think, the state park there, and there's a tower. You walk up to the top, and you have this panoramic view. I could see Texas from up there. It was amazing. Um, and we just had a, joy, a joyful time, and the weather's been just so cooperative, about 30 degrees warmer than it is back home. And uh, you guys have been great. Um, do you happen to have a picture of, uh, there we go. Uh, last night, I, I didn't have this picture. This is a picture of Maureen, my wife, with our seven, uh, so far, grandchildren. And uh, the one, uh, the big one up to the top left there, he's the six-year-old, and the rest are under that age, of course. And uh, they are our delight. Um, as I mentioned, we have um, uh, five sons in a row and then seven grandsons in a row, but Next month, we're expecting our first granddaughter, and she will be the most spoiled female on the planet, I assure you, and then another one coming in, in October as well, but they're, they're our delight. Um, you, a lot of you are grandparents, I can tell out there, and, and you would agree that grandparenting is easier than parenting, and uh, we have a lot of fun with those rascals, and they, we're, we're blessed to be able to have them all within you know, a half hour or less from where we live, so it's been a real, real joy. I hope you have an outline. If you don't have an outline when you came in, would you please go ahead and don't be shy. Go back and get one. There's a, you, you can see that, like last night, um, there, it's pretty thorough. Um, admittedly, much, uh, most of what I'm going to say is actually in print. And that is, uh, among other reasons, two important reasons. One, I mentioned last night that when I'm taking notes at a conference or in a message or whatever, I tend to get way behind. I'm not a fast writer, and so I've tried to do the, the heavy lifting for you and put a lot there so you don't have to write very much, and hopefully you can just soak in what's being said, take it to heart. The second reason I'm giving that to you in this form is um, a personal conviction that um, all of us as Christians... Uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of age, um, are called to counsel one another. Um, we're called to come alongside one another, help each other in our Christian walk, and all facets of it, including, including marriage and family issues. And you may not consider yourself a counselor, and maybe we shouldn't even use that word, uh, discipler, shepherd, good friend, <laughs> um, biblical friend. All of us um, should be iron sharpening iron. We should be loving e each other with the truth, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. And I would uh, suggest that the material before you this evening especially is very transferable. Um, you could use the notes that are in front of you with a friend sometime. Perhaps you become aware that they're struggling in their walk with the Lord. Maybe they're struggling in their marriage or in some issues of, of sin and how to deal with sin. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. You can, you can use these notes and it might spur a thought and maybe help a brother and sister. So um, that's why I've printed about uh, as I have. And I hope that that could be useful uh, to you. 
So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive in here, and I trust the Lord will give blessing to us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, tonight to belong to you. Thank you. Uh, out of your abundant, eternal mercies and love, you saved us, Lord, from the foundation of the earth, choosing us to be your own. That is unfathomable, your love and kindness to us in Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you have not only saved us, but you keep holding us and you keep uh, rescuing us from our sin, not just from hell, but daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. You're, you're, you continually rescue us. You use your gospel to pull us back, to convict us and cleanse us and restore us. And you do that in our marriages, Lord. Thank you for, for the truth that even though sin is a ginormous problem in our relationships, you have given the, the robust answer, the, the, the ultimate remedy for sin in the gospel. And Lord, it's ours to use freely, Lord, I pray. And I pray tonight as we just review this, this kind of Christianity 101 material, that it would bless us, it strengthen us, renew us. Some people here, Lord, I would suspect, really need a strong reminder of what it is to practice the gospel. Others just simply need to be affirmed uh, in what they're doing readily already. So whatever the needs are, Holy Spirit, would you please meet them to glorify yourself and to help us to be better for you. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to talk about what I consider to be the the mammoth number one problem in relationships. Uh, we're specifically talking about marriage, of course, this evening, but all relationships. And that is the issue of sin. Sin is the problem. And so and I'm just going to start working through your outline at the top. It says, sin is our greatest problem in marriage. And Jesus Christ and the gospel is our only solution stop there. Lots of ways in which people in the world might try to remedy the difficulties and the strains and the struggles and the trials in relationships. I would submit to you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only ultimate, robust, trustworthy solution to sin in relationships. The truth of the gospel embraced in our heart and practiced in the trenches of marriage is essential to cultivate a God-honoring marriage. Marriage is the intimate union of two sinners. Unfortunately, saying I do on our wedding day did not douse the fire of our flesh. Instead, it actually poured gasoline on it. Getting married doubled our opportunities to be proud and selfish by gluing ourselves, cleaving to one another, to another sinner who is almost as sinful as we are. Every marriage is comprised of two sinners. And there's certain things that sinners do, and one of them is they sin. Sinners sin. And they sin against each other. And they do so even in very good, strong marriages. Sin is what separates us from God 
And sin is what separates us from our spouse. Sin is what slowly damages and in many cases destroys marriages. Sin is the ultimate reason why some couples who once stood at the marriage altar madly in love with one another eventually end up barely able to be civil to each other and in some cases file for divorce. Follow the rope back in any marriage that is chronically strained or less joyful and intimate than what is realistically hoped for, and you will find sin. Sin that has not been dealt with biblically. Sin is the greatest enemy in your marriage. Therefore, dealing biblically with your sin is an issue of primary importance. This is so foundational, this session, and admittedly, it builds upon what we talked about Sunday morning in the message and what we talked about last night in our heart principles. There is admittedly overlap. There is repetition with some variety here because this is such a crucial area. I would repeat, sin is the greatest enemy in your marriage. Therefore, dealing with your sin is an issue of primary importance. Again, sin is our greatest problem, and Jesus Christ and the gospel is the only solution. I put this on your outline. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Jesus Christ willingly suffered and sacrificed himself on the cross to absorb and forgive our sin. The gospel is that when we were yet sinners, not saints, Jesus Christ died for us. He pursued and pardoned us when we were enemies of God and deserving nothing but his wrath. And once we were saved and still sinful, he, continually, he continues to unconditionally love and bless us in spite of our many imperfections. And he does all of this at no cost to us. We don't deserve such love, sacrifice, blessing, and faithfulness, but we receive it all as a free gift of his grace. That is the gospel in succinct form. And I put in your outline, this amazing grace of the gospel must be applied daily in your marriage. It is essential it is the sin quodon, if you will, of a biblical marriage. If you don't have a biblical marriage, if you don't practice the gospel in it. Again in your outline, marriage forces us to exercise our faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel beyond the realm of mere theological belief in our minds into the realm of practical shoe leather application of our wills to forgive and love our spouse with godly attitudes, actions, and words in their ugliest moments and seasons, just as Jesus Christ does for us. The grace that you have freely received from God, you must freely give to your sinful spouse. Simply put on your outline there, where sin abounds in your marriage, grace must much more abound. 
In other words, you must practice the gospel in your marriage. Again, like I did last night before I go any further here, I want to make it clear. I am not being negative about marriage, okay? Highlighting the danger of sin is not to imply in any way, shape, or form that marriage is a bummer. Not at all. I highly recommend marriage. Marriage is one of the the supreme joys of my life. Marriage is a blessing. But it is only a blessing to the degree that we are dealing with our sin biblically. I'm a realist. And I've seen enough wounded and broken marriages to see what sin does. Keeping short accounts regarding sin is a huge component to honoring our Savior and experiencing parental joy in our marriages. This is so critical, and I trust that your heart, no matter where you're at in your uh, sanctification process, if you've been a Christian a short time or a long time, wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, I pray tonight that you would take this to heart and really, in a fresh way, apply it in your relationship with your spouse. So I want us to consider two sides of practicing the gospel of marriage, two main points that we're going to deal with tonight. We're going to deal with main point number one, then we'll take a break, get some refreshments, and we'll come back and deal with number two. So number one, we're going to talk about dealing with our own sin, and then number two, we're going to talk about responding to our spouse's sin. So we're going to start here tonight with dealing with our own sin. And I'm going to begin by reiterating one of the 12 heart principles that we covered last night. And that's the bullet on your outline. Believing that I am the chief of sinners in my marriage, not my spouse. If you were here last night, this is review. Repetition with varieties, essential for learning and sanctification. I want to repeat some of the things I said last night. If we're going to practice the gospel in marriage, we must begin with understanding our own depravity, that we are the chief of sinners in the relationship and not the person we're married to. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul wrote, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, Whom I am foremost of all. A gigantic issue in many marriages is that husbands and wives either consciously or subconsciously think that their mate is the biggest problem in their marriage. If only their spouse would shape up, things would not be so bad. Perhaps you don't succumb to that in your marriage. If you don't, you're a rare breed. We all struggle with that. I struggle, I teach this, I wrote these notes, and I still struggle with being self-righteous. There's days where I think if Maureen would just get her act together, the life would be a lot more supreme, but it's not. I've seen this over and over in marriages. Guilty of it myself. On your outline there, I put, are you aware of how incredibly, inherently self-righteous we are? Pointing the finger at others and blaming them is so natural and fleshly. We are prone to spot the specks of sin in the eye of our spouse from a hundred yards. 
but ignore the logs of sin in our own eye as we stare into our mirror. We tend to minimize our sin and maximize our spouse's sin. We usually hate our spouse's sin far more than we hate our own sin. That's a problem. We typically cut ourselves much more slack than we cut our mate. And all of this is poisonous to a marriage. We must come face to face with this issue. Our own self-righteousness must see how sinful we are. We all need, I put on your outline, we all need regular reminders of 1 Timothy 1.15. The Apostle Paul was a tremendous man of God, but as he compared his life, catch this, as Paul compared his life to his perfect Savior and not to other sinners, he saw himself as the worst of sinners and overwhelmed the great and, and overwhelmed the great by the grace of God that was freely given to him. That's the two sides of the coin. Paul was repeatedly reminded of his, of his fleshly heart and its awfulness, and at the same time recognized the grace of God that had freely forgiven him. And such a humble and contrite and sincere perspective of himself made the mercy and grace of God very sweet to the Apostle Paul. So here's where I'm going with all of this. If you see yourself truly before the Lord this evening, perhaps like you've never done before, but if you see yourself as the chief of sinners, yet fully, undeservedly forgiven and loved by God, it will make you a very merciful spouse. <laughs> It'll make you very merciful to the sinner that you are married to. I like what Paul Tripp writes there on your notes. You know that you have been gifted with grace when you were able to say, my greatest marital problem is me. The deception of personal righteousness is a huge wall in the way of marital change. When a husband and wife quit arguing about who is more righteous and begin to be grieved over their respective sin, you can know for sure that grace has visited their marriage. End quote. Being a student of your own depraved heart that the Bible says is desperately wicked and at the same time be a student of the beautiful multifaceted diamond of the gospel that saves and sanctifies your undeserving soul will serve to humble you and will fill you with overwhelming love and gratitude first to God and then inspire you to be more merciful and forgiving toward your sinful spouse. It was the Puritans, I don't know if it was John, o, John Owen or who it was, but on your outline put there, until your sin is bitter, the Puritan would say, until your sin is bitter, Jesus Christ will not be sweet. And until your sin is bitter, your marriage will not be as sweet as you and the Lord want it to be. I, I would contend, I would contend 
that apart from the issue of marriage, a, a really large problem in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint with a broad brush here, in modern evangelicalism today is a very weak view of sin. Because sin isn't very popular to talk about. It's not true in this church. You get plenty of good, solid teaching on sin. But out in the broad spectrum of evangelicalism, I don't think sin gets talked about very much because it doesn't put bodies in the pews. It turns people away. But I would contend with you, or I would present to you, that we need to talk a lot about sin and, and, of course, talk a lot about grace and who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Until sin is bitter, till we see how grievous it is and what it costs to forgive it and to cleanse it and to restore us to God. Until we get a clear picture, grace and Christ aren't as sweet as they should be. And I think there's a lot of people, very lukewarm Christianity. They're very um, unmotivated to witness. They're not very motivated to serve. They don't have much overwhelming joy of their salvation because they've lost the horror of sin alongside the amazing grace of the gospel. I think that is very important for us to understand. Loving Jesus Christ and the gospel is far more important than how much a husband and wife love each other. Because if we truly love Jesus and the gospel, we will truly love and forgive our mate as we ought. I say this in premarital counseling all the time. By the way, one of the funnest things to do in pastoral ministry is premarital counseling. I do a lot of marriage counseling. I prefer premarital counseling. Right? You got these two (laughs) happy, starry-eyed people sitting on your sofa. You know, they just, all they can think of how lovely everything is. And for the most part, I don't want to paint, you know, some people are more balanced than that. But for the most part, they they don't have a history of problems and struggles and difficulties. They're just, all they're looking forward to all this. It's, It's fun to do premarital counseling. I could make a living off of that. That's great. But something I stress with premarital couples is you're talking a lot, Sally and Joe, about how much you love each other and want to do life together. That's great. If you don't love each other, you shouldn't get married. Okay, so that's great. But I'm going to tell you what. In about a week after you're married, or at least a month, the most important thing in your marriage is how much Sally and Joe love Jesus. And how much they really cherish the gospel. I mean, in their hearts. Again, not theology exams. Anybody can pass a theology exam. In your heart, you love Jesus for who he is and what he did on Calvary. And you love the gospel that rescued you from a well-deserved eternity in hell. And didn't just rescue you from hell, but rescues you every day from a condemnation you deserve. And instead, lavishes you with love. You know, you you need to love Jesus and this gospel. 
That is going to be the most important love in your marriage. Not how much you love each other. Because if you have that love, you have that love for Jesus, and you have that cherishing of the gospel, you will deal with your sin. And you are going to have, I'm guaranteeing, you will have a glorious marriage. A really happy, fun marriage. And fruitful for the Lord. Okay. A second important piece. So we're, we're talking about first, we need to understand and believe that I am the chief of sinners in the marriage and not my spouse. Secondly, we must be quick to confess our sin thoroughly and seek for forgiveness. This is a second important piece in dealing with our own sin. Being quick to confess our sin and thoroughly seek forgiveness. I'm choosing my words very carefully. Fast about it and thorough about it. Again, sin is part of every marriage. All of us here with any level of honesty, go, yep, sin has been a significant part of my marriage. Sin is a part of every marriage. We will sin against one another in large and small ways all the days of our married life. Sin happens. We don't want it to, but it does. So the all-important question is, what should you do when you sin against your spouse? And please pardon me if this seems like so rudimentary. But it is extremely important. And I run into this all the time in trying to help couples that are really struggling. That they don't remember the basics that we're talking about here. So all marriages have sin. Large and small. It happens all the time. Remember, two sinners came together in an intimate relationship. And sin happens. So the all-important question is, what should I do when I sin against my spouse. We're going to talk about the spouse sinning against us in a minute. But right now, I've sinned against Maureen. What am I supposed to do? The short answer is that you must quickly and humbly go to your spouse and thoroughly confess what you have said or done that was sinful and tenderly ask for their forgiveness. I could not agree more wholeheartedly with Paul Tripp what he wrote there in your notes. He writes, There are few things that contribute more to the health of a marriage than the commitment to keep short accounts. We refuse to pout. We refuse to live in the silence of hurt and anger and vengeance. When we have done wrong, we will be quick to seek forgiveness, and reconciliation, end quote. The content, friends, of that one quote is so basic and so necessary, but I would contend is very rare in many marriages. I am staggered by the reality of how many marriages have sin. Again, I'm not talking about just major, you know, uh, high-octane 220 or high-voltage sins. I'm talking about just daily sins and that go on day after day and very little humble, intentional acknowledgement of the sin. Asking for forgiveness. Saying how much we are sorry for what we've done and pleading for forgiveness. 
how little of that happens. And I think it contributes to less than happy marriages that God wants us to have. Very basic, but very important. Why are so many marriages strained? Why are couples at odds with each other, not even liking sometimes to be with each other? What happened to cause such pain and anger? I can envision people on my couch in my office. What caused such pain and anger and bitterness and indifference and lack of affection? What happened to the couple who couldn't wait to be married and head off for the honeymoon, spend the rest of their lives together happily ever after? Tell you what happened. Sin happened. Day after day, year after year. Sin upon sin, most of it relatively small, but it's sometimes major. Layer upon layer upon layer of sin against one another that was seldom if ever confessed and never forgiven. I put it in your outline here, now, an illustration. Many marriages are like an old table with multiple layers of paint. Rather than keep short accounts, many couples add coat after coat of sin to their relationship day after day without ever stripping down to bare wood. By practicing the biblical discipline of confession and forgiveness. Instead of regularly confessing and forgiving their sin, they, they try to let time heal. How many couples are there? Oh, let, let time heal the wounds. Or they've swept things under the carpet. Or the guy brings home flowers. I'm not against flowers, but flowers are not a substitute for confession and forgiveness. Or just go out to dinner. Let's just have a date. Let's have a date night. That, that, that's a good thing. Or let's just be sexually intimate. That'll make it go away. No, it won't. Or perhaps we've even gone so far as to mutter, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All of those responses to sin are flawed. Severely flawed. Insufficient in honoring God in our marriages and in truly loving our spouse as we ought when we've sinned against them. Lots of cheap substitutes that people use to deal with sin when the only solution, the only robust solution is the gospel practice. Paul Tripp again on your outline. Confession is the doorway to growth and change in your relationship. It is essential. It is fundamental. Without it, you are relegated to a cycle of repeated and deepening patterns of misunderstanding, wrong, and conflict. With it, the future is bright and hopeful no matter how big the issues that you are now facing. So important. So just before we even go on now, we're going to transition into some very practical teaching on how to confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. But in the privacy of your own heart, your own thoughts, 
in your own marriage, ask yourself, how often in the last, let's just say, month, how often in the last month have you overtly confessed your sin and asked your spouse for forgiveness? In a month's time, I'm in a pretty good marriage. In a month's time, there's a, lot of, there's a handful of opportunities for that at least of what I'm describing. My wife is nodding her head up, uh, up and down. She wants me to raise the number. Um, it happens. Just, I'm a very practical guy. You get to know me long enough to see he's a very practical guy. This is very practical stuff. How often are we having interchanges of husband and wife where there's the looking in the eye and saying, Maureen, the way my attitude was when I got home from work today, when I said to you, that stinks to high heavens. That was sin to God, and it was dishonorable to you. You've been working your hiney off all day, got the meal ready for me, you got a busy night ahead, and I come in with that dirty, rotten attitude. Would you please forgive me? What a bummer that was for you that I came home that way. Would you please forgive me? I feel terrible. I don't want to do that again. Those are things that happen. It should be happening in our relationships regularly because sin happens. Just letting time go away and just let it, I'm telling you, very subtly, layer upon layer upon layer, and then you can't even figure out, why is it I'm struggling with not feeling that close where, what happened to the luster of the romance, the excitement of the bedroom? Where, where, what happened with this just looking forward to being together that we once had early in our marriage? What happened? I, I would say it's sin that's not being dealt with. So bear with me if you say, boy, this is the most rudimentary, foundational, basic thing I've ever heard. Bear with me. We're only going to do it for another half an hour. Here we are in your notes. How to confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. I share this because I run into it so many times where very neat couples, older couples, even love the Lord, neat, sweet, fun, good people, servants in the church, but they don't know how to do this. So that's why I'm doing this. Here's my 10 things. I've listed 10. You can add, embellish, do sub-points. But 10, how to confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. Number one, first of all, humble your heart before God and your spouse. Humble your heart before God and your spouse. One of the key verses in all of life and certainly in marriage, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Make sure your heart is humble before God. Confession or repentance that does not come from a sincere heart of humility is not profitable. So again, it's understanding my sinfulness. Number two, with that humble heart, confess your sin to your spouse. I've got some points under that. What I mean by this in confession, be specific and thorough. 
clearly state the sin or sins that you have committed against them. Be sensitive. Get into their shoes. Confess what you did and said, but also how you made them feel. And if you're not sure how they feel, ask them to share how you hurt them. That's really important. Um, I'm going to use, for the sake of illustration, I'm going to use what I would call a very serious, on the serious spectrum of sin in a relationship to, to illustrate my point, and that is a husband that has been caught in pornography and all the devastation of that sin against God and against his spouse. If a man is going to go to his wife and confess that sin to her, he's going to have to be specific. There's a certain level of thoroughness and specificity that the wisdom of Solomon, but there needs to be an honest owning of the sin. But then we need to get into the shoes of that wife. How did it, not only did what I, what I did was sin, it was lust, it was mental, emotional, adultery, awful but how did it make you feel babe oh for starters i think it made you feel like you're not enough for me or you now you're battling with comparisons with other ladies but that's maybe just the tip of the iceberg so i'm confessing to you how i hurt you but i want to know exactly how i made you feel not just what i did get the flavor of confession, and I'm using the example. There's, there's lots of sins that aren't, at, I would call, high octane, like something like a, a, a pornography practice sin. But nevertheless, the, the principles apply. Second, another point there: don't get defensive. Don't get defensive as you're confessing your sin, because often when you're confessing sin, your spouse will tell you additional things that you didn't know that you did or that hurt you, that hurt them. Don't get defensive. Don't minimize your sin or shift the blame to your spouse. They may have sinned too, but, it's our, it's, but your purpose is to deal with your own sin. You're not, you're not dealing with their sin right now. You're dealing with your own sin. I put there, never say, I'm sorry for what I did, but you. That's a bad strategy. Does not work. Number three, express your sincere sorrow and desire not to repeat the offense and what you should have done instead. This is all part of the thoroughness of forgiveness or asking for forgiveness. This is the manifestation of true repentance. Godly sorrow over sin as compared to terse and trite apologies. Here's what it might sound like. I put an example on your, on your outline. Honey, if I could rewind the tape, I would not have snapped at you the way I did, nor slammed the door. That was, that was so bad. Instead, I would have held my tongue and waited until a l later to calmly discuss with you what it is that irritated me. I need to grow in my self-control. 
I truly want to do better next time. I so appreciate your patience with me. Express your sincere sorrow. Let them know that you don't want to sin that way and repeat those things. Next, number four, use a gentle voice and touch. Use a gentle voice and touch. Again, there's a lot of lesser severe sins, and I'll get to this in just a moment, that don't have to be so thorough, I guess. But there have been times I've hurt my wife verbally. And there's a handful of time in our 30 years where I was on my hands and knees by the bed. Gentle tone, body language, brokenhearted, sincere sorrow, getting in her shoes, how she felt. I'm telling you, that is powerful. I'm not talking about technique. Say, boy, I, I figured out a way to make her soften. Talk about sincerity of the heart, not technique, not a gimmick, and the power of that in reconciling an otherwise awful interchange. Number five, in doing all this, ask your spouse to forgive you. Go, boy, that's a, an obvious one. Well, I don't know. I find lots of couples that very rarely actually say to their spouse, will you please forgive me? I hope that doesn't describe you. But we should be, would you please forgive me? Again, an example in your outline. Honey, what I did and said was sinful, completely unacceptable behavior on my part. I regret how I hurt you, and I don't want to do it again. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but would you please forgive me? And I put this on your outline. It is important that you specifically ask them to forgive you. This puts the ball in their court and requires a response, hopefully a positive response that can put the offense behind you, the both of you and allow you to move on in a close relationship. But ask for forgiveness. Again, are you doing this? Are we doing this? This is the gospel. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Boy, that starts in marriage for sure. Number six, don't apologize or simply say, I'm sorry. Both of these are man-made, impotent substitutes for biblical confession and repentance. Genuine repentance always involves a confession of wrongdoing and a willingness to make things right. An apology often takes the form of an excuse. Put on your outline, the word apology comes from the Greek word apologia, which literally means a speech in defense of. So apologies are often more, uh, nothing more than self-defense. I'm sorry if you took offense, but genuine repentance is properly expressed in an admission of wrongdoing and a plea for forgiveness. Be wary of using merely apologetic language 
in place of genuine repentance. When you think of apologetics, apologetics is defending the faith. Now, I'm going to give a little caveat to what I just said about that. I don't want to get caught up in vocabulary. There are times where my wife or I will say, I apologize. Okay, so I'm not all freaked out about, oh, he used the word apology instead of forgive. No, but it's the, it's the spirit here. Be careful that you're not in a defensive mode, that you're owning your sin and you're asking for forgiveness. You're not being defensive. Number seven, if they say they forgive you, express your heartfelt gratitude to them. However, if they respond with something like, I was no big deal, or it's okay, respectfully disagree and ask for their forgiveness again. Maureen and I have done this. It's so silly. We're like teenagers sometimes. After all these years, I'll say, honey, would you please forgive me? Ah, no, it's a big deal. No, 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 no. <laughs> Man, yeah, I didn't, you know, blow the family life savings. Yeah, but I, I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Thank you. Cleans the slate. Cleans the slate. You cannot demand that your spouse forgive you. But you can honor the Lord by your heartfelt, thorough confession and humble appeal for them to forgive you. Number eight, do not rush your confession. On your outline there, but depending on the severity of your sin and the hurts that you have caused, this may take 60 seconds or less or 60 minutes, or several conversations. I want to acknowledge here, that there's a lot of little silly stuff. It could be as simple as, you know, I bumped into you and I you, you, you tipped over your drink. I mean, that doesn't take three minutes and, or an hour of, you know, it's just simple. I'm sorry, babe. I did, would you please forgive me? I mean, it's over. Done. Admittedly, there are other times where we really act out sinfully we do bad stuff and it demands a longer conversation or conversations i put in your outline here it is amazing how some couples will fight for hours and tear each other to shreds with a barrage of sinful speech but then can barely string two sentences together to confess and make things right that is not right. That is not good. Again, I may be speaking to a very small cross-section here on this. So just bear with me. You say, boy, I've never really sinned that bad, that terrible. You know, I'll leave that between you and the Lord. But in my counseling ministry, dealt with couples that really get into some verbal tangles. And they say mean stuff. Sometimes they use profanity. Sometimes they're slamming doors and they're throwing objects. And then when they're trying to make things right, they give these glib, short, I'm sorry, excuses. That, that just doesn't cut it. Again, I'm going to use an extreme example. A man who has been constantly viewing pornography for months, whose confession to his wife was, 
I really screwed up. I'm sorry. That is not cutting it. The Puritans, I love this. There's a statement. Again, I wish I could quote that. I've, I've read this in different Puritans, so I don't know who stole it from who. But here's the statement I put in your outline. Our repentance should be as notorious as our offense. Our repentance should be as notorious as our offense. So if I tip over Maureen's drink, that's one offense that's very minimal. But if I've been looking at other women on the computer, that's notorious. That's really bad. My repentance is as notorious as my offense. Just for the record, this kind of, I, I'm clean in the area of pornography. I'm just using an illustration. But you get the point? Notorious repentance for notorious sin. Some sins are, you know, it's different if I, I'm driving down the road and I run over your poodle. I mean, and I come to your door and I confess I ran over your poodle. I'm going to be sad and say, sorry, Fluffy's dead, and I ran over Fluffy. There's a big difference between me running over your poodle and running over your three-year-old child. Difference. Different flavor, different tone, different intensity, different brokenness, different thoroughness. We want to deal with sin thoroughly. So do not rush your confessions. Our repentance should be as notorious as our offenses. Number nine, be the first to ask for forgiveness. If you've both sinned, don't wait for your spouse to humble themselves. You take the initiative. If you know there is sin between you and your spouse, the Bible puts the onus on you to seek reconciliation. Whether you or both of you have sinned, you must humbly pursue them. Romans 12, 18, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The onus is on us to pursue reconciliation is the point there. And number 10, the last one, keep short accounts. This is an utter necessity in every marriage. Keep short accounts. Ephesians 4, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity this idea of not letting sin go on we sometimes use the term at least we used in the years past cold wars cold wars in marriage well cold wars are prohibited in marriage we are to sleep in our own bed not on the couch men you sleep on the couch when you've got a sinus infection other than that you sleep in the bed because you make things right you may not be able to resolve all the issues that contributed to the sin but you can restore peace and agree to talk on the issues at a later date 
and make sure that you do. Keep short accounts. There's the old joke that the couple said, we do not let the sun go down on our anger. Instead, we stay up all night and fight. That's not a good philosophy either. After all this seriousness, I thought I'd try one lick of humor there. Um, before we transition, just this last thing here, very just practical. This is, I admit, very rudimentary, basic, foundational stuff, but so important. So important. Confession of sin is so important because sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what separates us from one another. We must deal with our sin. And we have the gospel to deal with it. We have confession and repentance and asking for forgiveness to bring reconciliation in our marriages. I was told de uh, decades ago that the best pastor is one who sits under his own teaching. It's another way of saying that pastors should practice what they preach. And so, I'm just being real transparent with you guys um, in this family Bible week here and specifically tonight. What I'm telling you tonight, what I've just spent the last 40 minutes or so explaining is what I've done a hundred times or more, hundreds of times in my own marriage. By God's grace, Maureen and I have a very sweet, intimate marriage. I think it's safe to say that we love and enjoy each other more than we did 35 years ago. And honestly, it's not a mystery to me why that is. And it's not <laughs> because we're super spiritual. It's not because we're flawless. And it's certainly not because we never sin against each other. That's simply not true. We have sin lots. We've had some pretty ugly episodes at different times over those decades. If there was a knucklehead Hall of Fame, Steve Ballvance would be the first ballot inductee in that Hall of Fame. The reason I believe that God has blessed our marriage is because we have consistently practiced this very basic, fundamental, simple principle of keeping short accounts. Dealing regularly, thoroughly with our sins against each other. Practicing the gospel in our marriage. It really does work. I have a lot of flaws. We have a lot of flaws in various dimensions of our lives. But by God's grace in 35 years... I cannot remember one night in 35 years where we, didn't, we weren't sweet on each other when we went to bed. Now, there were some issues we had to deal with, certain conflicts. Okay, we have to talk about this and work out the details and so on. But as far as being able to genuinely look at each other and say, Babe, I love you so much. Sweet dreams. Have a good night's sleep. Every night for 35 years. Short accounts. Short accounts. Keeps a marriage sweet. Don't have to have a PhD in marriage counseling to know this. Just need to walk humbly with our God. 
and humbly with our spouse. And always view ourselves as the main problem. And own our sin. And tenderly seek forgiveness from one another when we sin against each other. The outline there. Our sin is bitter, but our Savior and the gospel is so sweet. When our Savior and the gospel are center stage, center stage in our flawed marriages, our marriages can grow sweeter with age. Father, thank you for this first part here, dealing with our own sin. Thank you that we aren't left to our own devices to reconcile, to restore harmony, to maintain sweetness. We're not left alone. You, O oh God, are more than powerful. Your gospel is powerful to save and keep us to reconcile us over and over, to rescue us from ourselves and our sin, to keep us strong in love with one another in our marriages. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would give us grace to practice these principles evermore in our marriages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's take a little five-minute break, um, if we could, and then we'll come back quickly, and we're going to do part two responding to our spouse's sin. So let's take a little break and then we'll come back together.
shoot me if it's after 8.05. All right. Thank you, everyone. Let's come back together. Sorry for that short break. It's, um, I am chronically long-winded. Ask my congregation back home. Um, this second section is going to be very short. We're going to do within the next 15 minutes, and then um, the, the people that are working with the children will love us, and uh, I won't keep us longer. So anyway, we've um, we're talking about practicing the gospel in marriage, and we've talked about dealing with our own sin. Now, in very short order, we're just talking about responding to your spouse's sin. But again, if I could just simply illustrate it this way, I realize that the things that I'm saying in this first session was very basic and foundational. I don't mean, and I mean this sincerely, don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence by being so foundational and basic. It's just that I find my own propensity in my heart not to follow those basics and I see it in many people that I love in my own congregation and people that I've tried to help in their marriages where asking for forgiveness just doesn't happen. Something that we take for granted. We go, of course we would do that because, of course, we sin against each other in large and small ways. Of course, we'd be just always doing this as a common practice, and I find that we, we don't. And so we need to practice the basics like that multi-million dollar pro athlete who's Let's say he plays for the Brewers, and he's, you go to the Brewers game, and before the game starts, he's out there playing catch. You go, 
Why is the guy playing catch? He's been playing baseball since he was this high. Well, he has to keep practicing the basics over and over so that he can, be, can continue to be that great multi-million dollar baseball player. So very foundational, I, I admit, but so essential. And I just see the, the gloriousness of it when we do practice the gospel in our marriages and really humble ourselves and own our sin and, and ask for forgiveness. Okay, point two there, responding to your spouse's sin. Dealing with our own sin, now very quickly, and we'll wrap this up. Responding to your spouse's sin. Two pieces to this. We need to forgive them completely and love them unconditionally. Forgive them completely, and then we'll talk about loving them unconditionally. But forgiveness is, needs to be complete. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The same thing stated in Colossians chapter 3, that we should forgive each other just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The core of the gospel is that Jesus Christ forgives undeserving sinners and he does so over and over every day of our lives and having been freely forgiven by God the Bible says that we in turn are to forgive those who sin against us which of course includes our spouse I like how Piper puts it on your outline there we must take the forgiveness that we have received vertically through the death of Christ, and bend it out horizontally to our spouse. Let the measure of God's grace to you in the cross of Christ be the measure of your grace to your spouse. In other words, just what I'm saying all along, preach the gospel to yourself every day and practice the gospel every day in your marriage. Friends, this, this grace of God and the forgiveness of God should be ricocheting off the walls of our homes. One of my favorite go-to passages to remind myself of the need to be a forgiving man, and, the, and I go to it for helping brothers and sisters to know how it is to forgive others, even though we're great sinners, is that classic passage in Matthew 18 called the parable of the unmerciful servant. And you know the story, and I won't take time to read it, but... We need to apply that lesson. Um, and basically, this is the gist of it. Your sin against God far exceeds the sins of your spouse against you. Yet God forgives you freely and completely. And so in the same way, you must forgive your, your mate. Jesus painted a vivid picture of how grievous and unacceptable it is to God for a believer to receive grace upon grace from God and then to withhold that grace and forgiveness from fellow sinners. One must never lose sight of the billion dollar debt of sin that Jesus paid on their behalf in order that they might not grieve their Savior by choking their spouse and others over a hundred or even maybe a thousand dollar sins that are committed against them. Put on your outline, sadly some spouses strangle their mate over the sins they are unwilling to forgive. Unforgiveness, friends, 
wreaks havoc, untold damage on marriages and families. Practicing the gospel in marriage means that you fully forgive your spouse for all the sins that they commit against you. I think it's important for us to understand what forgiveness is, and I'll go over this quickly. What is biblical forgiveness? First of all, what forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is not a feeling. It is an act of the will, not the emotions. Forgiveness is an First and foremost, an act of the will, not the emotions. It is an act of obedience. Forgiving is a decision we make based on the truth of the gospel and and in response to the commands of Scripture that we just read just moments ago from Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. Two, forgiveness is not forgetting. So I can't forgive him. I can't forget. No, you can forgive but you don't need to forget necessarily. References to God forgetting our sins are really statements of God promising not to remember our sins against us. God does not keep account of the wrongs we have done, and he tells us not to do so with our offenders. So get that. So I I can't forget what happened. Well, sometimes it's impossible to forget the sins that have happened. But forgiveness is not forgetting. It's it's a commitment to not hold those sins against our offender. So God is omniscient, right? He can't forget anything. So when it says, I will remember their sins no more, what God is saying, I will no longer hold your sins against you. That's what forgiveness is. Now, forgetting the sin may be a byproduct of forgiving, but not always. Sometimes God does bless it, gives a divine amnesia, and we forget, but not always. Number three, forgiveness is not excusing sin. We call sin what it is. We don't ignore sin. We don't condone sin. We don't minimize sin. Forgiving sin does not eliminate consequences. For example, an employer may fully forgive a man for embezzling money from his company, but he probably won't allow him to continue being his accountant. There's a period of trust and so forth, but a relationship can be restored nonetheless. But we don't excuse sin. That's not forgiveness. So that's what forgiveness is not. Let's talk about what forgiveness is. And there's a definition on your outline there. The Greek word for forget, aphemē, it literally means to send away, to set free, to let alone, to release, to cancel a debt. John MacArthur defines forgiveness like this. Forgiveness is purposefully laying aside malice, bitterness, vengeance, hatred, and spite toward our offender. We choose to love them and pray for them instead, end quote. Lou Priolo in his excellent book, The Complete Husband. By the way, man, if you want a really robust, super good husband book, The Complete Husband by Lou Priolo is for you. He defines uh, uh, biblical forgiveness like this on your outline. What is the gospel or the good news? The gospel is simply this. If we repent and place our faith in what Christ has done by substituting himself for us on the cross and rising from the dead in our place, God forgives all our sin and gives us eternal life. Forgiveness, therefore, is first and foremost a promise. As God promises not to hold the sins of repentant believers and sinners against them, 
so we also must promise not to hold the sins of those we've forgiven against them. You may demonstrate this promise not by doing at least three things. Catch this. Demonstrating it by not doing at least three things to the person you've forgiven. First, you may not bring up the forgiven offense to the forgiven person so as to use it against him or her. Two, second, you may not discuss the forgiven offense with others. And finally, you may not dwell on the forgiven offense yourself, but rather remind yourself that you have forgiven your offender, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Ken Sandy, in the author of his book, Peacemaker, echoes Priolo's quote like this, and I put it on your outline. Forgiveness is a decision. It is a promise to, one, not dwell on the sin mentally, two, not bring up the sin against Again, to use it against the other person. Three, not talk to other people about the sin in order to harm your offender. And four, not allow sin to stand between you and the other person and hinder your relationship with them. Now, admittedly, the complexities of sin in life and in marriage, sometimes this is a very messy affair, for lack of a better description. I don't want to oversimplify this, but these are the basic things of what forgiveness is not and what it is. And there are some times where the sin is so hard and so deep and pain is so critical that you need to talk it through a lot. So when it says that we'll never bring up the sin again, well, I, I may sin against Maureen in a bad way and I ask for forgiveness, but I don't say, and I never want to hear another word from you about it, Maureen. No, she shouldn't use the sin against me. Like, Steve, see, you're the same creep you always used to be, blah, blah, blah. No, she shouldn't do that. But she should have liberty to say, honey, I'm still kind of reeling from the pain of that. Can we talk about it? You bet. I sinned. Part of my consequence is to gladly minister to your heart as we talk through it further. This comes up in impurity stuff. Pornography is, I'm sorry to use that example again. It's so prolific. It's so sad. Lots of marriages affected by it. But a wife who's been hurt that way, she needs to be able to talk about it. Even after she's forgiven her husband, she needs to talk it through long, many conversations over lots of time. So yes, and, and to say that we should not talk to others about our sin, that means you don't, you're not a gad about it. You're not a gossip. There's nothing wrong with going to your pastor or your elders or some biblical counselor, a confidant, somebody that's confidential. And pour out your heart. We need that. Remember, we are never more like Jesus than we for, when we forgive unworthy sinners. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, in a word, live together in forgiveness of your sins. For without it, no human fellowship, least of all marriage, can survive. So, we must forgive. We must forgive completely. In what a sweet thing to, to experience the joy of reconciliation. Sin humbly, thoroughly confessed, repented of, restitution made, things made right. It's like a bone that's broken. When it's mended properly, that bone is stronger in the place it was once broken. It actually grows stronger. And God's amazing, mysterious providence even those issues of sin can actually be areas that we're strong in if we do it biblically. 
The next point there, love them unconditionally. I'm going to let you read through there. I was pretty thorough in your notes there because our time is gone. Um, but love your spouse unconditionally. How do you do that? How do we love anybody unconditionally? Some, we're unlovely people. Why, how do you do that? You do it by being a student of the gospel. The gospel is more than I ask Jesus in my heart and I get to go to heaven. The, Jesus, the gospel is studying the cross, studying the atonement, studying what God had to do to remedy sin, propitiation, <laughs> reconciliation, adoption, our new identity in Christ, all the multifaceted facets, justification, all of these glorious facets of the diamond of the gospel you, you see, wow, wow, God is an amazing God of love, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. God loves me? Yes, he does, because of Christ. Can I love those that are sometimes unlovely, including my spouse? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I'm soaking in the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of God's love for me, I can, I can bend that vertical love horizontal to my wife, to my husband. We can do that. And I give some ways in which that would look like, what that would look like. Final quote there on your outline. Just to sum this up. The best marriage book ever written is the gospel. Never stop studying it, preaching it to yourself daily, and practicing it in your marriage. Are you practicing the gospel in your marriage today? Are you doing that, friends? Are you dealing with your own sin biblically? Do you really see yourself as a foremost sinner in your marriage? Are you quick to confess your sin thorough to ask for forgiveness? Are you responding biblically to your spouse's sin? Are you forgiving them fully? Are you giving them the full measure of God's grace that's been given to you? Are you loving them unconditionally? Even in the midst of their ongoing struggle with sin. Father, thank you. We will spend eternity, God. We will spend eternity praising you for your infinite love and grace. So undeserved. I just look at my own life, Lord. I was merrily on my way to hell. And you interjected yourself. You interrupted my life. You made me your own. And you did that for each one of my friends here. Circumstances were different, but the truth is still the same. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and you caused us to be made alive in Christ. You forgave us all our sins, made, your, made us your own, cleansed us, made us your children, love us, in spite of our ongoing 
defeats and failures. Lord, would you please overwhelm us afresh with that reality tonight, the days ahead, and may it spill out over to our dear spouses, Lord. Be God, God, be honored in that. Be glorified in that. We know we will be blessed by it. Make it a testimony to those that do not yet know you that there is a God in heaven. There is a Savior who they need. We ask in Jesus' name.